If you'll turn with me to the book of Colossians, as if you didn't know. <laughs> Chapter 3. <coughs> I'm going to be reading from verse 21 through chapter 4, verse 1. Colossians three twenty-one. <clears throat> Fathers, do not provoke your children, lest they become discouraged. Bond servants, Obey in all things your masters according to the flesh, not with eye service as men pleasers, but in sincerity of heart, fearing God. And whatever you do, do it heartily as unto the Lord and not to men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the reward of inheritance, for you serve the Lord Christ. But he who does wrong will be repaid for what he has done, and there is no partiality. Masters, give your bondservants what is just and fair, knowing that you have a master in heaven. Now if you'll turn with me to the book of Ephesians. We're going to begin Ephesians chapter 6 and verse 5. Ephesians chapter 6 and verse 5. <coughs> and we'll read through verse 9. Excuse me, verse beginning at verse 4. And you fathers, do not provoke your children to wrath, but bring them up in the training and admonition of the Lord. Bondservants, be obedient to those who are your masters according to the flesh, with fear and trembling and sincerity of heart as to Christ. Not with eye service as men pleasers, but as bondservants of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart. The good with good will doing service as to the Lord and not to men, knowing that whatever good anyone does, he will receive the same from the Lord, whether he is a slave or free. And you masters do the same things, giving up threatening, knowing that your own master also is in heaven and there is no partiality with him. Let's seek the Lord's guidance as we look into his word. <clears throat> Father, we thank you that again we come to your word and we thank you that you have told us that it is your tool of sanctification for us as believers. And I just pray that as we hear your word, as you speak to us, that you will help us to grow 
in grace and in the knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. And I pray for myself that you will give me wisdom, help me to know what to speak and what to say. And Lord, I pray that each one of us will allow the Spirit to speak to our hearts and give us guidance in all that your word says. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. So we're looking at Colossians chapter 3. And uh, I won't take as much time as I did last week. But let me quickly remind you that uh, we have in this chapter 14 commands. And uh, these 14 commands are there for our growth in grace and to become more Christ-like. And uh, as I pointed out last week, the first two commands <coughs> are vital and important. If we don't follow those first two commands and obey them, we won't follow the rest either. Because they develop the intimacy and relationship that we need with the Lord Jesus Christ so we can walk in obedience. And uh, all the grace of God does is give us all the abilities and even the ability to obey so that we can walk in obedience to Him and know the blessings of the Lord. And let me just point out again that in that first command, we are told to seek Christ. And that should be our heart's desire. That's what we should be doing every day. I was thinking about this uh, uh, the other night, uh, seeking Christ, and how life can get so busy. Do we have time? And I remembered when uh, my wife and I were, well, young, <laughs> We were just getting ready to go out to Africa and we had to have an interview with the Canadian director of the SIM. And so we went into his office and sat down uh, in front of his desk and he was behind it, of course. And on the wall there was a sign. And I've never forgotten that sign. It says, if you're too busy in the king's business to have time for the king, you're too busy. And I've transplanted that verse or that saying to my whole life. If I'm too busy, period, to have time for the Lord Jesus Christ, then I'm too busy. I love the old hymn. We don't sing it much, but take time to be holy. Speak oft with the Lord. Spend much time in secret with Jesus alone. And we need to do that. And uh, we talked about that in marriage relationships. Your marriage relationship is only as strong as your relationship with Christ is. And so this is vital. This is vital to our Christian life. And then the second command and, uh, is that we should have a mindset on things above. We should have a mindset on things above. Uh, 
One of the things I find, it's so easy to get involved in this world, we forget the above. The above. We get so busy in this world, we forget the above. We, in our workaday world, in the busyness, in our physical needs, whatever we're doing, we need to keep focused on the eternal. The eternal. Why the eternal? Because all of this is going to pass away and the eternal is going to be forever. And we should, we should be people who are walking in our minds and hearts in the forever rather than in the world we live in. You know, Jesus prayed in that 17th chapter of the Gospel of John. He said, I don't pray that you should take them out of the world, but that you should keep them from the world or from the evil of the world. And one of the things that's so easy for us is just to get caught up in the world. And so I think it's important for us to realize that if we can, by the grace of God and through his strength, obey those first two commands, the other ones fall in order. If we don't, we won't. It's that simple. It's that simple. And so we need to keep our focus on the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, I won't go through all the commands, but <clears throat> we started uh, looking at uh, verses 18 through 25 under the heading, Forging Favorable Relationships. Forging Favorable Relationships. I'll get that out. Uh, and uh, I think it's important for us to realize that our relationships with one another and their value is only bound up in our relationship with Jesus Christ. And we only can forge those relationships in Jesus Christ. Otherwise, we can't forge those relationships. Now, we looked at the first that I command that we find and I put two under the title of marital harmony and we looked at marital harmony and we looked at the woman's responsibility of accepting Christ's order accepting Christ's order uh, it says really there fall in an orderly fashion <laughs> fall in in an orderly fashion women are to be uh, recognize their role as subject to their husband. And uh, that's something, excuse me, that's vital and important. And then we look secondly uh, at uh, verse 19, and it's what I call exercising Christ's attitude. Exercising Christ's attitude. And uh, again, let me just point out, I said there's 14 commands here. Technically, there's 15 commands. But I say there's 14 because the two commands that are given to men are what I call offsetting commands. It says, love your wives 
continually. And then it says, don't be embittered against them. And you can't love your wife and be embittered at the same time. And you can't be embittered and love your wife at the same time. So that's why I call them offsetting commands. And again, loving your wife is only true in proportion to your loving Christ. The more you love Christ, the more you will love your wife. And vice versa. <laughs> Ladies, the more you love your the Lord Jesus Christ, the more you will love your husbands. And so we, we took time to look at that, but I, I just wanted to explain that technically there's 15 commands, but I always say 14 because those two are offsetting commands. You, if you're obeying one, then the other isn't a problem, you see. And uh, it's important. And then we looked at uh, 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 the uh, second uh, heading that I had there, and it's in verse 20, modeling Christ's desire. And we, we looked at that quite extensively last week about children obeying your parents and pointing out that the command is actually in the context to believing children to honor their parents and uh, all of you who are here today uh, are to honor your parents if you're believers it doesn't matter how old they are or what their condition is you still have to honor them and I pointed out in the Ten Commandments the Hebrew word for honor is your parents should be heavy upon you. Your parents should be heavy upon you. In other words, you should have a heavy concern for your parents. And you should love them and care for them and do whatever you can to minister to them. Now, and this is a gripe of mine, but that's okay. In, in our society today, we have thrown off the responsibility of caring for our parents to the government. And we set them to, into a home or somewhere where we don't have to worry about them. And uh, that, that is uh, sometimes, sometimes a necessity when it's impossible for us to care for them because of their physical conditions. But as much as is possible that is within us, we should be caring for our parents. Today, <coughs> we're going to look at the number three under uh, forging favorable relationships. And that's what I call motivating children. Motivating children. Whereas you read it, uh, you'll probably say you should think, oh, this is how not to vo motivate children. Uh, if you look at uh, uh, the passage in Colossians, you will see that there is nothing positive in 
that command. It says, It says, Fathers, do not provoke your children lest they become discouraged. What's positive in there? You know what's positive? What hasn't been said. If you're not discouraging them, you're going to be doing what? Encouraging them. Encouraging them. And so, it becomes vital and important for us to understand. And first of all, I want to point out here that who the motivator is. Who the motivator is. And as I pointed out last week, that each one of these has the article before it in the original, and it's the Father. The Father. He's responsible for the motivation of his children. The Father is the one who is responsible. Does that mean the mother can just say, okay, <laughs> go ahead, Dad. Shoot the works. Uh, no. The Father and the mother should be coordinated together because the father should be teaching the mother the direction that their home is going in. And we saw that in, in uh, the husband's responsibility as the teacher in his home. And so the father becomes the teacher in the home. He teaches his wife and the wife probably spends a lot more time with the children when they're growing up than the father. Father tootles off to work, and the wife says, oh boy, <laughs> here we go again. And uh, uh, I think that we have to realize that both the father and the mother have to speak with the same voice and attitude and actions to the children. All the work is not the responsibility of the father. When the father is there, he is responsible. He is responsible to teach the children when he's there. He is responsible to teach his wife. But he can't be with them all the time. And therefore, therefore, the responsibility of both and their actions have to be the same. And uh, he is the motivator. I was thinking about that last night. And it, I, I, we had an opportunity to stay with a couple twice who live in New Jersey. And they had uh, four girls and one boy. And uh, uh, the father was the one who did everything. The father was the one who did everything. He was taught this in his church, that it's his responsibility to do everything to the children and not the wives. And one day my wife was talking with one of the little girls and said something to her, and she said something back to my wife. And the mother said, Oh, you're in trouble. You didn't say Mrs. Osbach. And that's all that was said. And so when the father came home, the mother said to the father, 
You know, she didn't say Mrs. Osbach when she was talking to Mrs. Osbach. And he said, oh, is that right? So he grabbed the little girl, took her in a room and beat the tar out of her because she didn't say Mrs. Osbach. Uh, that's, that's what the problem is that this is talking about provoking your children. Provoking. I remember when their oldest daughter became 18, she left New, New Jersey and moved to New York City and they never saw her again because her whole life she was provoked. She was provoked. And so that leads us to the, what is the second thing and the mistake is provoking your children. The word provoke is a very interesting word because it means excite or anger or irritate your children. Don't anger, excite, or irritate your children. Uh, I, I like the way A.T. Robertson uh, uh, analyzes this passage. I don't know if you folks know A.T. Robertson. A.T. Robertson at one time was one of the greatest Greek scholars in the, on the North American continent. Uh, I remember using his uh, Greek grammar book. It was about three inches thick and yeah, big. <laughs> I can't remember half of what I studied in there, but that's okay. And, and he makes this comment, and I think it's very important. He points out here in this passage, it means to nag as a habit. To nag as a habit. Do we tell our children over and over and over again, do this, do this, do this? And if they don't obey, there's no consequences, there's no correction, there's no direction. Just nagging, nagging, nagging. And uh, I often think, and I've heard mothers and fathers say, how many times have I told you? No. Uh, maybe if you, and we'll see the solution in a moment, maybe if you used the biblical solution, you wouldn't have to keep nagging at them to do it, you see. And the Bible gives us the solution. And then, so that's the mistake. The third thing I want you to notice is the mess created. The mess created. M-E-S-S, mess created. It says <coughs> that they will, in Colossians, that they will be discouraged. They will be discouraged. That word discouraged means have a disturbed state of mind or uh, to uh, be despondent. How, how, what, what am I supposed to do? Uh, you know, I keep getting it, I keep getting it. No matter what I do, I'm going to get it, you know. And uh, it's, it's important. It, it says in Ephesians that you 
make your ch- take your children to wrath, to wrath. If you nag them all the time, you take them to wrath. That's the mess you create. And the word uh, wrath there means resentment towards the person. You cause them to resent you. And when uh, children are like that and they resent their parents, they do one of two things normally. One, they run away. Can't handle this anymore. I'm getting out of here. Or else they don't hear their parents anymore. They just shut them off. And both of those are very dangerous things. And uh, uh, I've seen it, and I've seen it illustrated in the lives of young people where uh, there's a constant nagging. I remember a young girl telling me the story. She said, uh, no matter what I did at home, and if I complained about something, my mother would always say to me, well, if you don't like it, get out. And she said, one day, she said it again. And she said, so I went to my bedroom, packed my suitcase, and crawled out the window and started down the road. I didn't know where I was going, or, but she said, get out. So I was getting out. And uh, just a short time later, her father came home and said, where is she? And her big sister said, oh, she just went out the window. She's running away from home. So the father went down the road, picked her up, put her in the car, took her home, and gave her a good spanking. He said, why did you do that? He said, that's what my mother told me to do. That's what my mother told me to do. You see, she kept nagging and nagging and nagging. And uh, the child was totally, totally irritated with the nagging. But there's a good hope. If you look in Ephesians, it's the method that's demanded. The method that's demanded. Let me just give you a literal translation of this. It says, to the contrary of provoking your children, nurture them to maturity in the sphere of, in the sphere, excuse me, not sphere, sphere of, instruction with discipline. That's instruction with discipline and exhortation belonging to Christ. Give them biblical exhortation. Teach them. So what is it that we have to do if we are going to raise mature children? We have to discipline them, give them direction and instruction, and we need to lead them into the truth that is in the Word of God as to how they should behave. And so 
I think it's important to follow these kind of, or this kind of practice in raising children. And uh, it's, it's uh, something that we see less and less of in our days because children have become the master of the home instead of the parents. I was thinking about the passage in Luke chapter 2. You remember when Jesus went into the temple when he was 12 years old and his parents left him there? By the way, uh, most people blame Jesus, but it was the parents' fault. They assumed he was coming. And then when they found him, they blamed him for not coming. You know, uh, don't do that, parents. <laughs> and, uh, uh, but it says he submitted under their authority and for 18 years he lived under their authority. And it says he grew in wisdom and in favor with God and man. And we knew he, we know he grew in favor with God because at his baptism, at his baptism, you see, God says from heaven, what? This is my beloved son, what? In whom I am well pleased. He lived as a young man should live. But notice the second part. It says he was in favor with man, too. He was the kind of young man you'd like to have around. There was something always neat about this guy. He was always so obedient. He always did the right things. Uh, do you ever find that there are uh, some children that you just don't like to be around because they're not obedient and don't do the right things? Well, Jesus was just the opposite. Men, men really appreciated him. And so our, our job as parents then is to bring up our children and nurture them so they become lovely, mature people who know how to handle life and who know how to handle circumstances in life. By the grace of God, they will come to know the Lord Jesus Christ. But we, that's in God's hands, not ours. You see, but we, we have that responsibility. So we see that there is a responsibility. Command, don't provoke. Don't provoke. Don't nag them to death. And positively, discipline them with instruction and teach them the Word of God. Vital and important. The That's motivating children. Motivating children. And then I want to look at the fourth thing here, which is actually the last two commands. And uh, <coughs> under the heading of 
Mimic Christ in the workplace. Mimic Christ in the workplace. I'll, I'll probably with this one be sticking, sticking mostly to Colossians because the, well, Ephesians says basically the same thing. First of all, he says as an employee or as we'll see, a slave, you have to have disciplined service. Disciplined service. We'll find this in verse 22. We'll see the command in a moment. Now, those, first of all, he points out those who should be or who he's talking to through these words are directed to those who these words are directed. And in, in the original, it's not bondservant, it's slaves. It's the slaves. Uh, uh, and you have to remember that in the context of the early church, most, many, not most, many of the believers were slaves. They were owned by somebody, they came to know Christ, and they would meet together as a part of the body uh, when they had free time. That's why the church usually met at late hours of the evening because that's when the slaves were free and the people were free. And uh, uh, they didn't have a Sunday off, you know, to go to church back then. And so uh, he it's directed to the slaves. And the word, the idea here is that it applies to anybody who is over you and has ownership of what is being done. And uh, the masters fit that category well. And then look at the dimensions, or excuse me, the directions that he gave them. And it's very interesting. He gives the same direct word to the slaves as he does to the children. Here to obey. Here to obey. This is what you're supposed to do. And uh, I think as we look at the work-a-day world, we have to realize that there are people who are over us and we must hear what they have to say to obey what they have told us. And let me just underscore this again because I think it's vital and important. We do not have to obey those over us when they want us to go contrary to the Word of God. We always obey God rather than men. But in the workaday world, whatever they ask us to do, you know, even if it's a very uh, distasteful job, we go and do it. And then this is the direction given. And then the third thing I want to point out here is what I call the dimensions of the directions. The dimensions of the directions. If you 
literally what he's saying, down from all that the Master brings. Down from all that the Master brings. That word down there in the original has the idea of somebody in a higher place coming down to a lower place. And uh, the Master is in a higher place and we are in the lower place and we are to obey whatever we feel like that he wants us to do. Right? No. He says all. All. Whatever the Master says, you do it. And again, we saw the parameters there. And then his... I'd like you to notice the designation that he's given. The master. He is, the word master can be translated owner. And I think Paul purposely uses that word at this point because Paul is going to talk about Christ and his ownership about us, over us, and our service to him as the one who owns us. And so he's drawing the contrast. Here is a master and notice notice how he designates him. He says he is in the flesh. He's a man just like you're a man. He's a human being just like you're a human being. But your true master is the God, the Lord of heaven. But you still must obey this master. And then he talks about what I call our demeanor or our attitude. He says uh, there, first he states it negatively, not in the sphere of eye service in the manner of pleasing men. By the way, that eye service is a very interesting word in the original. It's a compound word. And it has the idea of doing something for somebody only when they're watching. Or working on your job when you're scrutinized, but not when you're left alone. And, and he says... Don't don't work just when they're watching you so you get a good name for yourself and you please men. Then he goes on and he states it positively. He says, to the contrary, in the sphere of sincerity, in the sphere of sincerity belonging to the heart, and it's very interesting, he says, become fearing or reverent to God. Why does he put that at the end? He says, you got to have the right attitude in your heart on your job. You don't, you don't go on the job and say, I don't want to do this, but I'm going to do it anyway. You know, you got to have a right heart attitude. But he says, remember, that God knows your heart. Respect the fact that God knows your heart. And so work with a heart attitude that is pleasing 
to God that is pleasing to God. You work with a heart attitude that is pleasing to God. That's, that's what your demeanor should be. Lord, I'm here in this messy old dirty place again to work today because I love you and I want to serve you. And I want to do it according to your will. You see, this is, this is the whole thing. What's my heart attitude? I don't know about you, but I found that sometimes when I was working, I did work, by the way, uh, uh, I didn't have the right attitude, you know. Uh, and God had to kind of give me a little kick <laughs> and straighten me out and say, hey, I got you this job. I put you here under that person, and therefore, you better have the right attitude on this job. You better, you better do it with a heart that loves God and is seeking to obey God. And uh, I had to change attitudes more than once. And uh, it's um, something that is uh, always something that we have to deal with. And let me point out that if you haven't sought Christ, if you haven't looked at the eternal, you will never obey that command. You can't. It's impossible. You have to have your eyes fixed on Jesus to obey the command. Then the last part in verse 14 I call divine sensitivity. Divine sensitivity. Excuse me, I said 14. It's verse 24. It's command 14. I'll get it right yet. It's verse 23. And whatever you do, do it heartily as to the Lord and not to men. First of all, he talks about our labor. Uh, actually, the literal translation there is also suppose that whatever you are doing, continually labor in a manner to the master. And not to men. I'm not doing this to make my boss happy. I'm doing this because Christ has commanded it. I love him and I'm going to do it because, because he has commanded it. And that's, that's uh, how we do our labor. We keep working constantly so that uh, we honor Christ. And then the second thing I see in this verse, uh, verse 24, is knowing that from the Lord you will receive a reward of inheritance for you serve the Lord Christ. And this is what I call our logic. This is our logic. I'm talking about spiritual logic here, not physical logic. Our spiritual logic is, I'm doing this so that I can 
honor Christ and receive the benefits and blessings that are mine as a child of God. And if I have that kind of logic behind me, then I'm going to do it for the glory of God and to honor Him. I won't be doing it for my paycheck. I won't be doing it so that people will pat me on the back. I'm doing it because I want to honor Christ by everything I do. And that's exactly what he says there. It's interesting. In the original, it says that the Master, Christ, will give you fully back everything. Fully back. He won't, he won't hold back. He'll give you fully back everything. And uh, I think it's important. And uh, I realize that we don't serve God for reward, but we have to remember that there is always, always reward for obedience. There is always reward for obedience. And that reward usually comes in the form of spiritual blessing every day as we walk day by day. And there is the eternal reward. What's it, what is it going to be? I don't know. I, I think the greatest reward that we're going to receive for walking in obedience to Him is when we stand before Him and say, hear Him say, well done, thou good and faithful servant. I don't know about you, I don't think I need any more reward than that. I don't need a dozen crowns or anything like that, big mansion. All I need is His approval. His approval. And by the grace of God and through what He's provided, I can do that. You know, that, that's to me one of the great things about the Christian life. I'm called to do what I am fully equipped by Him to do. <laughs> and yet I'm responsible to do it. Not in my own strength, but because He has equipped me and made it possible for me to do it. And I'm still responsible before him to obey. Isn't that, that's, that's one of the great glorious things to me about the Christian life. He never asks me to do anything that he doesn't equip me to do. And then finally, I, um, in verse 25, it's what I call the legality. The legality. Uh, if, you, if you look at that verse, it says, but he who does wrong will be repaid for what he has done, and there is no partiality. Now, what is the wrong he is talking about here? What is the wrong he's talking about? Not following what you're responsible to follow in the instructions given as a believer. Then you do wrong. 
And uh, uh, it, it's very interesting, as I said, because we are responsible because the Holy Spirit uh, has given us in the, in the Word everything we need to live godly lives. And it's important for us to do that. And uh, I, I, again, like what A.T. Robertson said regarding this. He said, the general law of life and of God, this, that, that is this statement, is the general law of life and of God. It is fair and square. If, if you're not doing what your boss says and he fires you, that's what? That's fair and square. If you're not doing what God says and you find spiritual leanness and your spiritual life is decaying, that's only fair and square for God to allow that, isn't it? Because you are not walking in obedience to Him. Paul puts it this way in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verses 13 through 15. 1 Corinthians chapter 3. He says, Each one's work will become clear. For the day, that is the final day, will declare it. Because it will be revealed by fire, and the fire will touch, test each one's work of what sort it is. If anyone's work, which he has built on, endures, he will receive a reward. If anyone's work is burned, he will suffer loss, but he himself will be saved, yet though as by fire. And that's exactly what Paul is saying. He's quoting exactly the same idea here as he did in Corinthians. That God, God will legally deal with disobedience. And uh, we find that in all our lives as Christians. And then just a quick comment before we close. I close here. He doesn't give any commands to the masters. If you look at both portions in, in Colossians and Ephesians, he doesn't give any commands to the masters. And the question is, why doesn't he give commands to the masters? And I think the answer is found in Ephesians because he says, masters, you do exactly the same thing. Be submissive to your master, Jesus Christ. Be submissive. So if you're an employer, then you have the responsibility to act as if you're serving Jesus Christ as an employer. And, and he leaves it there. And, and these principles are, are ones that are very difficult in our society because we have determined individualism. And we want to do our own thing and nobody's going to tell us what to do. 
But God's plan is different. Whatever you do down here, do it as service to God. Don't worry about anything else. That hymn was so appropriate. Take my life and let it be consecrated, Lord, to Thee. Take my moments and my days. Take everything I have and let it be yours. Let it be yours. And let me do everything, everything, everything I do for the glory of God. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that sometimes we sit back and we realize we have been infected and inflicted by the society that we live in to act contrary to the principles of your word. But we thank you that you've given us your word in the spirit so that we can walk worthy of the Lord. And I pray that in everything we do and everything we say, we might walk worthy of the Lord. May this be true of us as individuals and as a body of believers here together at Bowmanville Baptist Church. Thank you for what you're doing for us and in us and through us. In Jesus' name, amen.